Okay, okay I do like okay. to see you, though. I do like to see you. Okay. Um, but just keep it going. Yeah, um, let me just try this. Okay. Oh, there you go. There you go. Hello. What happened there, then? Oh, I just pressed the wrong button. Okay. But no, if I'd done that on a Trevor Horn session, I would have been sick. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. This generation rules the nation with version. It's in the trees. It's coming. This is my 80sography. Welcome to Atisography and a My Atisography at that. It feels like it's been a while since I've done one of these. Um, these are very much the bread and butter of the Atisography episodes, these, these My Atisographies. And I really enjoy doing these deep dives into people's 80s careers. And no one had a more impressive 80s than I guessed Julia Mendelssohn. It was a wonderful interviewee. There's that antipodean directness and sense of humour that makes you feel immediately comfortable and relaxed in somebody's company. But yeah, the, the three hours went very quickly. We did this on a Sunday morning UK time because he was in Australia. And it's an unnatural time to do a, an interview. And I'm not a morning person. But it, it was a brilliantly enjoyable chat. I hope that comes across. I actually recorded it last year, and it's just the fact it's, it's quite a backlog of interviews to edit. Um, that's the only reason it's taken this long to come out, because it is a really good one. So anyway, enjoy the first part of my chat with producer, engineer, mixer extraordinaire, Julian Mendelssohn. Part one of the interview begins now. Okay, so Good. what I want to do briefly before we get into the 80s is just, just cover briefly how you became an engineer and where right. you were approaching 1980 in your career. Right. Well, when I was uh, very young, when I was at school, my father died when I was eight and I uh, ended up at a uh, quite a posh school in Melbourne a few years later called Melbourne Grammar. We also moved a couple of years after I stayed, uh, started there, we moved to another suburb, to a smaller place 
And around the corner was a, another bloke called Ian McKenzie. We all we went to school together in the same classes. Uh, Ian McKenzie ended up becoming quite a, a well, top-end recording engineer here in Melbourne in the 70s and 80s. And uh, we both were obsessed from about the 12, age of 12 uh, with all that record. He was more technical and I was more the music side. We were obsessed with it. You know, this was going to be our thing. So we knew from that age that that was what we were going to do. We even built a little recording studio in his dad's garage. Anyway, we used to muck around in that. So uh, my mother later on uh, in the late 60s met a British diplomat and they got married. He then got transferred back to uh, the UK. This was 71, end of 71. This was my mum's dream because she always wanted to live in England. And so we got both me and my sister we got all picked. Everything was cancelled here and, you know, we moved over to the UK and I was pretty devastated actually because I'd just finished school and all my friends were going off and doing their, you know, their trips around Australia and their surfing and their partying and all that stuff. I was pretty devastated. I had lots of good friends here. Oh, we arrived. Uh, I remember we got a, a Qantas 707 and mum wanted to take us through Rome. It was in February. And she wanted to take us through Rome, so it's Rome on the way. And we couldn't stop at Rome. There was a general strike on in Italy. So we had to carry on straight to this, in this 707, which was pretty much at the end of its life. There was no air conditioning. We got to Heathrow Airport. It was it was about midnight. It was absolutely pissing down with rain. It was cold. <laughs> it was windy. You know, that, that yeah. sort of. February night, not very pleasant. Anyway, there was no M4 then. There was no M4 motorway. I think it came out to the airport, but it didn't go any further. And we were going to um, just beyond Maidenhead uh, to Cookham. Cookham Dean had rented a big uh, house for us. Anyway, we drove through Slough on the way. Oh, the Have glamour. you ever been to Slough? Eh? I've uh, driven past it. I've never stopped. You yeah, yeah. well, it's, it's actually, it's all right now. I mean, okay. later on it became good, but in those days, oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. I yeah, thought, I what am I getting myself into here? <laughs> you know, I mean, I was quite devastated for the first year. All I wanted to do was come back back here. Anyway, in the end, I had a few little jobs, driving a baker's van and gardening. Then I got a, then I thought, no, I'm here. I'm going to make the most of my opportunities. I'm going to get a job in a studio and uh, I'll do the best I can. And if I haven't done anything by the time I'm age 30, I'll just go home. You know, I'll say, well, I tried and that, that's that. Anyway, I can't remember how I got. I got a job with an audiovisual company that used to do presentations for conferences. It was, very, it was all done with slide projectors and audio synced up with the slide projectors. Anyway, so I got a job with them. It was my way. And I had been to a couple of big studios. I've been to AdVision Studios, which was a very famous studio in the in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And, and the guy just dismissed me. He just said, well, you know, what what's your previous history? And I said, well, I don't really know. You know, I didn't have any real experience. It was quite upsetting, really. I went to two or three places. I was it, it was a difficult time too in the early seventies, I think, in London with this uh, studio business. Anyway, I gave up, got this job at AVE at this audio visual place. I worked away at that, uh, and then I had a customer, uh, and I was desperate to get out of there. 
because I didn't get on with my, with my boss. Uh, I've got to move on. I've got to get a job in a studio and I uh, can't remember his name. I just said, look, do you know anybody in the, in the recording studio side of things? And he said, oh, yeah, funnily enough, I've got a friend who's just built this small studio in uh, Fulham Road, Chelsea, and uh, he's just started off and, you know, maybe you could get in there. Anyway, I went and saw John, John Milner, and uh, he took me on at, uh, he said, part-time for two or three days a week. And then, uh, oh, that's right. And then we got going, the studio, because it was a brand-new studio. It was a tiny little place. He was an ex-BBC engineer. He used to do Top of the Pops. Uh, but he just had the studio set up by his very powerful father-in-law, who was a construction man. He used to build all the cooling towers for the, you know, the big generating stations. Mm-hmm. And uh, his father-in-law wanted to keep control of John. It was a bit useless. He was a brilliant engineer, but in his life, he wanted, he, he was just a bit aimless, you know, he had no ambition. Anyway, that was actually probably the best move I ever made because he taught me all the basic, basic stuff, you know, mic placement, what mics to use for what, all that sort of gear. Like, you know, the, he built his own mixing desk, which was, and only had 10 channels, which was also a really good thing. He had an eight track uh, Levers Rich recorder so I was really restricted I couldn't restricted I had to be really careful about if I was recording a band I only had 10 channels and we only had 12 microphones so it was actually really good when I look back on it and actually that mixing desk was a fantastic sounding desk because I listened to stuff that I did then I've still got copies of that stuff and bloody oh it did sound good it was bloody good so that's how I got going, and he, because his of his lack of go, he really didn't care if there was any work because he was being financed by his father-in-law. I got really frustrated, and I say used to get friends in and record. There was no work. There was no work. Uh, I used to sit in there and muck around and learn so what things. What year would this have been at this time then? Uh, I think it was seventy-three or seventy-four. I got the job, and actually, when he finally gave me a, a formal job. The bloody three-day week came in. <laughs> yeah. Remember the three-day? Well, yeah, you would have been a child. I was about two at the time, but I remember. Yeah, the, but you you know about it, evenings, don't you? Yes, definitely. Yeah. The three-day week. So yeah. I, I know there we are. I've done two weeks, nearly full time, and then the three-day week came in, and that was it. Anyway, it was a good thing to be there, if you know what I mean, because uh, I had lots of spare time just to experiment and uh, just learn my stuff. A year or two later, my first real recording session was with um, Linda Lewis. Do you remember Linda Lewis? Uh, vaguely. She was a really great singer, really great singer. You'd know her songs. I think she did uh, that Cat Stevens song, Schoolyard. And she came in with a uh, with her band to rehearse at the studio and she said, oh, can you just record it just straight to stereo? And her band were fantastic. They had a drummer called Jerry Conway, bass player who was actually a guitarist called Robert Awai. Absolutely amazing. I mean, these were the best, best session players in the country at the time. And Jim Cregan was on guitar. So it was an absolute pleasure to record. So I just recorded it all and live and I thought, hang on, this is, I didn't know it sounded really good then, Mm. but I've still got a copy of that. And I put it on, I think, how the hell did I do that, you know, with not really knowing what I'm doing? 
you know. Was that the case of literally just recording a live band as opposed to? It was a live band in the yeah. studio, yeah. yeah. Yeah, everything was live. There's no overdubbing. So that's that was sort of the first band I recorded. And then I started to get, it was mainly a demo studio, so people would come in and do their demos. I had people like um, Ian Hunter, mm-hmm. you know, Ian Hunter from, was he not the Hoople, wasn't he? Well, I didn't know who he was when he came in, but that was a big thing because he was a he was a rock star and it was all very rock starry. You know, he had his roadies and his personal assistants, and and then uh, I, the dream of my life. Um, I had a bloke called Paul Rogers come in and do some stuff, and that was like for me that was just just unbelievable because I loved Free, and I loved Bad Company, so that was a big moment. I think I did Brian Ferry briefly, but there were lots of other unknowns in there. Uh, oh, one of the best unknowns was Chrissy Hind. Okay. Uh, she she just arrived from America. She was a punk. She was all dressed in leather. She came in to do some demos. We did some demos for that very first album. Is that with the Pretenders, or was it just on, on her own? No, no. This was just her. I think she just had session musos in. Right. And. Um, they were really great demos. I think one of them, a couple of them ended up on that first album, to be truthful. Yeah, there was one with a telephone ringing in it, a song with a telephone ringing, and it was the flukiest thing. She wanted a telephone ringing in time in the middle of this live track, and luckily there were two lines in the studio, and she said, oh, you go on that line and ring me on this line, and we'll just try and make it work on the multi-track, and it just happened. First go was all in time, all perfect. That stop your sobbing because there's a Is phone. That it? Yeah, there's a phone ringing in that. Do 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 do. Oh God, you've got it. You know your stuff, don't you? Now I'm just looking oh, at the, the first album. It's like there's a track called the phone calls. So I was at that, and it's all stop your sobbing. I thought, wait a minute, it's got that do 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 phone kind of sound in it. That could be it. Right. When I listen to that, I, I mean, I might be wrong, but I think it's that's the original version that we did. It is time for you to stop all of your sobbing. Yes, it's time for you to stop all of your sobbing. Oh, there's one thing you gotta do to make me still want you. Gotta stop seven hours, stop seven hours. Yes, yes, stop, stop. So you recorded so, anyway, with a phone with a phone sound at the same time as they as yeah. recording the song. No, no, no. We weren't playing the song live. We were playing right. the multi-track and we overdubbed, overdubbed the phone live. Right. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, that was that was a big moment. She was a very she was going somewhere, this lady, you know, she was very determined and single-minded. A she general wasn't, point, when you're working with artists that are new, can you usually tell? Like someone like Nick. Oh, Kirk, I knew there was something there with her. But can you generally tell? Yeah, they're going to make it or this guy's going to struggle. Oh. It's not got much going on here. Well, I know when so, they've got talent, but I don't know when they're going to make it or not because that's a whole other ball game. Yeah. You know, it's the right place, right people, right time. But, no, I had a feeling about her. I, actually, I don't think I did know that she was going to go somewhere. I was a bit – she was a bit full on, you know. She was a bit slightly aloof, you know, and she was, I could see that she was on a mission, if you know what I mean, to – to do something. There was no sense of humour. There was no laughing, giggling or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
She was just wanted to get the job done, you know. Uh, and actually, at the end of one of the days, I think we did a few days together. Uh, the one, at, at the end of the first night, she said, "Oh, look, I haven't got any money left. Can you give me a lift home?" She had no way, had no money. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give us a lift home to Clapham? I said, "Oh, yeah, that's on the way. I live in Wandsworth, so that all works out okay." <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, I'll never forget that. So what did you feel um, was your, your biggest breakthrough pre-1980? The big breakthrough was that there was a bloke called Robert Rosenberg and he had a New Zealand friend, uh, lady, not girlfriend, but collaborator. They used to write songs together for publishing companies. He used to come in and do lots of demos with me and uh, he was the accountant for Jill Sinclair uh, Psalm Studios. Yeah? Yep. And, of course, you know Sam. Sam East was then. And I'd actually, strangely enough, I'd met Gary at a party in Notting Hill Gate a few months a few months before, and we got on like a house on fire. And then Robert said, look, they're just building, they've had a fire at Sam East, at Sam Studios. Uh, Jill's looking for, you know, another engineer. Would you like to go and meet her? And I went and I said, oh, why not? That was about September 78, September, October. So I went to see her in the building site and got the job. And Gary, of course, knew me and that was that, you know. And then I, then I was off for about three years of hard labour. 1980. I take yeah. this nicely into 1980, actually, because you were one of the engineers on drama by Yes. Yeah, the drama. Which yeah, so there's five engineers listed, and there's Gary Lang and yourself and Hugh Padgham. That's like that's like a super group of engineers, isn't it? Travelling yeah. <laughs> Wilburys of engineers. Did Hugh engineer some He's of that? He's credited. He? I don't know what he did. I, I thought, he uh, probably recorded some because he was doing it with the uh, the wacky producer who sort of lost it in the end. Uh, he would do. They were doing the backing tracks of the townhouse. That makes sense. And sense. then I think. John Anderson, I don't know what the story was, but John Anderson had had enough and Tre- um, Trevor and Jeff from the Buggles took the whole thing over and they produced it together, brought it to Sam. It was a, I was just telling somebody last night about it. I said it was just an adventure. It was just so full on on the like, extreme uh, technicalities of recording that album it was just on another level I've never seen and neither of us had seen anything like that before. Because all the band were doing their different bits in in different studios. So they'd bring in 24 tracks of what they thought was going to go on the on the song. And you somehow you had to move stuff. It was unbelievable. It was like engineering gymnastics, me and Gary used to call it.
we were right on the cutting edge because we're the first 48 track studio in Europe. You know, nobody was doing 48 track. So anyway, that was that was a really good big learning curve for me. And it was fucking excuse my language, bloody hard word work, really hard work. We nearly killed ourselves, me and Gary, doing that because Trevor and Jeff, Trevor and Jeff were very. Uh, they were hard to work for. As really in, hard. As, what, as in exacting, like... Oh, God, yeah. Go do it so many times until you get it right kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the, band, the whole band were like that. Well, Chris Squire was. He was so anal about absolutely everything. And Steve Howe, lovely guy, he was the same. And uh, Alan White was just the drummer. He just did what he was told. He was a lovely bloke. Yeah. They're all lovely blokes, but boy, it was hard work. <laughs> great training, great training. So what was your relationship with Gary Langham? Were you like co-engineers or was there like a... Well, he, he, he was the main engineer and I, I assisted for about a year before I started to engineer. Yeah, we were best mates. We're still best mates. I spoke to him the other night. So yeah, he got me going. He taught me quite a few things and we had a great time, but it was bloody hard work. And the drama album... The record had been going on for two years. The record company had had enough. There'd been millions of dollars, millions of pounds spent on it. And the pressure was serious, was on really heavily. Uh, and um, it was a summer, summer, when did the album come out? 1980 or 81? 1980. It was a hot summer. And I remember we were, we were doing shift work. We'd do two weeks, two weeks, Gary would do the daytime and two weeks, that same two weeks, I'd do the nighttime. And then we'd swap over every two weeks. So I'd do days, he'd do nights. And it was like this for three or four months. It was madness, absolute madness. There was no time off, no days off. You know, it was just, God, terrible. Anyway. But I got to ask you about another credit you had in 1980. I think you have. Did you work on the Rock on Tommy album for Cannon and Ball? You're credited as working on that. What? So that's not true. I, I thought I, that can't be right. So that's not true. Yeah. So I can knock that one off then. You didn't work with Cannon and Ball. I don't I, think I, so, unless I did it without knowing I'd done it. Unless okay. it was a track that I don't know. Where You know who Cannon just, and Ball are, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were comedians. Yeah. Yes. They? they were very funny. Yes. And okay. what was it called? Cannon? Rock on Tommy was the LP. I did a version of Oliver's Army. This is the sad thing. I already had this on my iTunes because I'd ripped it earlier before even I even knew you were on it. Because uh, on Tommy it does ring a bell. Does, can I just play a little bit of it and see if it's... Uh, yeah. How could you not, how could you not remember working with Cannon and Oh, sorry, that's not the... That's not the album, is that? Do Cannonball Oliver's Army. That should come up. I don't know what you're watching there. Oliver's Army. Oliver's... It does ring a bell. I want to name of the song. At the bottom of this, because if it's true, that's just... Well, if it's true, I'll be amazed. Uh, this was um <laughs> it's taking you back 
No, I know the song, and that wasn't their song, though, was it? Who did no, no, they, they covered it. They were trying to be contemporary. That was a joke. And then they stopped halfway through and say, oh, this. No, I've got a credit on that, have I? I, I somewhere, I don't know if it's Discogs or somewhere just puts you down. On one of them, you're on it on, I think, all music you're not. So obviously, that's okay. I, can, uh, I don't know. I don't remember it. I maybe. Maybe it was in the middle of the Yes album, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. <laughs> the welcome break. There's no danger. It's a professional career. We could be in pain. This is it. What was that for? Forget it. I mean, look at that, you spit all over the guitar player. Look at him in that box, though. He likes it, Tommy. What do you mean he likes it? He's, he's not, waving he's at me. Waving at, he's mad. Look at him. Oh, he's coming out. Now you're in trouble, boy. If he kisses me, Tommy. 1981. Okay, 81. Did we? Okay, so you weren't involved with Cannonball. Were you involved in any of the dollar <laughs> singles that Trevor Horn produced? Oh, I did a bit of stuff on it, but that was mainly Gary. Okay, so when you when you say you're doing do a bit of stuff, stuff. Yeah, would I you did, be called in for a day or two just to help out? Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, I did a bit of recording. Uh, I don't think I did any mixing. Did a bit of recording when Gary was so exhausted he couldn't do anything. So that's the way it was with Trevor and Jeff. Was it Trevor and Jeff on that or was it just Trevor? I think it was just Trevor. No, it was just Trevor, yeah. Yeah. I was wondering if you have any recollections of making those singles because, as I said to Gary, they're just like four perfect pop songs that yeah. we've worked on. That's what uh, Trevor always wanted, perfection. Yeah. Mm. But w- what is it about Trevor's production that creates that kind of perfection? Is it just about he just works and makes you all work so hard on it? Or is there some kind of... Bloody right he makes us work hard on it. Crikey. Right. Say again? It's bloody hard working for him. Yes. But what is that? Especially in those days when the ambition, his ambition was there. Yeah. You know, boy, I I was still hard 10 years later, 15 years later. God, yeah, he was obsessive. It was a bit like me and Gary with our engineering. We were obsessive, but he was obsessive. And Trevor would always take pretty much the longest route to get a result. That was part, that's the way he worked. You know, there was one time we spent, Days on a bass drum sound. And I said, Well, we, we've got a really great bass drum sound. He says, Oh, no, we've got to try this, we've got to try that. In the end, we ended up back at the beginning. Yeah. That's how it was pretty much with most things. Yeah. Certainly when he started off. I mean, I think later on in life, he saw the light and realized that it was good stuff. Uh, yeah, it was hard work. Okay, so staying into 82, so there's Buggles, Adventures in Recording, you engineered. Um, oh, right. uh, well, I did a, the vocal. I was given the task of recording the first two lines of uh, Video Killed the Radio Star. Okay, so that's back to 79. He did do that. 
Yeah, that was 79, was it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was trying to, uh, sorry, it's not in the 80s. No, no, go for it. It's a classic song. I talked to Gary uh, about it. Well. Anyway, Gary had been on it. They, it took him a year to make that record. Uh, and in the end, we we're getting there, and, he, and Trevor couldn't get the first line. And Gary was either absolutely knackered or doing something else. So he came, uh, Trevor and Jeff came and said, Come on, we're going to try and get this first line. And, uh, all day, so, so first line over and over again, over and over again, you know, and then, oh, Tre- uh, Jeff says, you've got it, you've got it, and I accidentally pressed the re- record button and erased it. <laughs> oh, <there's laughs> the from after that. <laughs> yes, I did. I, we, we did get it in the end, but boy, oh boy. So what was missing look. in those first two lines? Was it the way he was singing it? It was t- tuning, tuning. A tuning. Right. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't a proper singer. Right. He turned into one on the drama album because he sang all that. Yeah. You have to you have to admire the bloke. I mean, the first gig he ever did was uh, Madison Square Gardens. <laughs> yes. That's I mean, that. you know. Yeah. So yeah. Um, on that second Buggles album, Adventures in Recording, is I Am a Camera, which was also on the Yes album. So he, they'd written, written it for yeah. the Yes album. Um, so what no, 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 they hadn't written it for the Yes album. That was just an experiment. But it was on the Yes album, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes. It was a, a, yes. Yes being the operative word. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, comma, yes. 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 <laughs> so, um, no, they, they just wanted to they wanted to get on a Yes album because it would, sold, it would sell thousands of times more. Okay, than so, the, so basically it was a Buggles song on the Yes album that then Buggles yeah. recorded themselves. I think... I think I'm a camera. I think Jeff sort of wrote that one night with JJ, the keeper, the Fairlight man. You know JJ? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Polish thing. Are you going to do, do one with him? You should. It's great. I'd like to, yeah, if I can get in contact with him, yeah. I'll give you his contact. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, I'd love to. I'm, I want to do all the Art of Noise guys, so I've done Gary. I've yeah, done he's him. fantastic, JJ. He's fantastic. Yeah. He's a great friend of mine. I can't remember, but I think that song came together really quickly, just one night off the all off the Fairlight. Jeff, or maybe it was just Jeff, might not have been JJ, because Jeff the Fairlight. I can't exactly remember, but it was very quick. It was done in an evening. The version on, um, uh, you know, on the on the Buggles album. I've still got a copy of that, and there's actually a mistake where I let a. Uh, there's a mistake on it. Do you hear that the, near the beginning? Whereabouts? I really like, I think it's a really great song. That's that's why. A I'm, really great song. Yeah. I'm gonna have to check that. That uh, in fact, I might check it now because I haven't heard. A few years ago, I was listening to it. Memories yeah, this is the one. Mm. Look back. There is no escape. I'll tell you when it is. Now you see too late. Coming up. Great track. It's a great song. Here comes. There. That was it. Coming up. That's it. 
Did you hear that little ant? Yeah, I heard, I heard it now. I'm going to hear it every time I hear the song now. I yeah, I hear it every time. <laughs> because that we did that in an evening. That was done in a night, that whole track. It was done straight to uh, straight to tape. There's no multi... Oh, no, there was a multi-track. And the mix, we, the rough mix we did at the end is that mix. That's why we let that mistake go. We couldn't fix it in those days because we right. didn't have... Uh, it was difficult to fix it. And actually, a few years ago, I... I suddenly re- I did it on the Pro Tools and fixed it completely. I sent an email to Trevor. I said, why didn't we do this? Why didn't we just edit that bit in? It was dead easy. We could have done it. I never got a reply from him. <laughs> <laughs> There's your answer. Yeah. So, what, what- yeah, that, was a, that was a magic moment. You know, that was one of those moments where we didn't have to labour over the whole thing. It was just like we started at 7 o'clock and we'd finished at 5, 8, 11 or 12 o'clock. Which version do you prefer, the Buggles or the S version? Oh, definitely the Buggles. Definitely the Buggles, that's the right answer, yes. Yes, exactly. Is that, do you agree with that? I do, 100%, yeah. I mean, I quite like the S version, but that, that Buggles version, there's just something about it. It's just... Yeah, because it was done really quickly and it was all, everybody, the chemistry was just right. Everybody was on, on form apart from me and the little mistake. You know, it was a, it was those magic moments in the studio. You just, you just let the side down, Julian, didn't you? I did, I did. <laughs> on, yeah. he, he never let me forget it, you know. That's why I didn't answer your email, yeah? Bastard. You're still angry about it. <laughs> so around this time, you started working with Peter Collins, producer. So were you yep. back and forth between Peter and Trevor Horn at this time? Were you kind of like flitting between the two? Yeah, yeah, I did. A, yeah, I was still doing a lot with Trevor. I think Trevor had started the 90125 album, hadn't he? Yeah, it came out in 83, so it'd be around 82. Yeah. yeah. I think I came in to mix half of that because Gary was, I can't remember, maybe Gary and Trevor were going off to South Africa to do um, Malcolm McLaren. That I think right. that's what it was. Uh, anyway, Gary was supposed to have worked with Peter Collins and Jill said to me, I don't think Gary can do it. Why don't you do it? And I said, oh, I was a bit nervous, you know, working with somebody new. She said, no, go on, you do it. You'll get on really great with him. Anyway, we got on really great and passed the duchy. So was that the first thing you worked on with him? So that was huge yeah. as a number one single. So how how was it dealing with the kids in the studio? Was that? They were good. They were good. Yeah. Yeah, they were lovely kids. They were pretty young, you know, I think... The youngest was seven or eight, and the oldest was 12 or 13. Mm. It was really only mis- mixing it, and I think we did the did the rapping. I think that was the overdubs we did. Might have done a couple of overdubs. Yeah. 
Um, around this time, there's Sign of the Times, the Bell Stars. Sign of the Times, yeah. yeah. Did I do that? <laughs> Apparently, I don't know, you didn't do Cameron Ball, so they listed that as well. <laughs> it's I'm pretty sure I, did I guess you were around at that time, so it was around 82, 83. Yeah, I can't the... remember which songs I did with it. It wasn't, uh, should I put that in? Sign of the Times. Sign of the Times is a massive hit. It's a great, great pop song, one of those great hits of the 80s. Instantly recognisable. Sign of the Times. It's a sign you've been involved yes. in too many hits if you don't remember top 10 hits. <laughs> if I was involved Look, in the top 10 hits, you've got to remember, I was working. It. I would know. Yes, that was me. You've, yeah, you've just got to remember that I was working. We're both working like dogs, though. We didn't get any days off. There was months and months of no days off. Yeah. And 18-hour days. So it's quite difficult to remember so when you're working on a track and it was released as a single, would you note at the time, oh, this is coming out as a single and track its progress? Or would you be, just be so busy on the next thing? Oh, there you go. Okay. Thinking of you. 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 I don't remember doing this. I got a feeling this is going to be the whole conversation, isn't it? <laughs> Did you do it? I don't know there's one coming up in 83, you're going to say this. I don't remember doing that. I don't remember doing that one. I probably did. Oh, you wouldn't remember that. <laughs> when it hits the top ten, you think you wouldn't be thinking at the time. Yeah, I did that. I didn't listen. I was too busy to even notice what was going on on the top. That 10. was my question. So you wouldn't be like checking the charts, watching Tyler Pops, checking the progress of the song you just worked on. You wouldn't. Oh, I don't yeah, remember. It was, it was all a fuzz. That yeah, that time of you know we were both of us were making hay while the sun shone. You know we we knew it could all end any moment. There's a lot of lot, you know. Being in that time, it was, it was. Um, you could be gone. You know, you could just disappear. You have your moment, and then you could be gone. So you yeah. tended to go for it while you had it. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. One you will remember yeah. in '82 is mixing "Shock the Monkey" by Peter Gabriel. So that was a that. big moment in my yes. life. How did you that get that a, gig? Don't know. Can't remember. I think it just was a session. I don't think it was me. I think it was the studio. I think it was just a session. It was before I went freelance. So I think uh, Peter and his engineer, I can't remember his name, John somebody, I think, they just booked Sam and I was the engineer and his engineer let me get the mix going and helped me with it and that was that. Were you given any but, specifications of what they were looking for with the mix? I mean, was Peter there oh, as Peter, well? Peter was, yeah, they were both sort of knew what, where we were going with it, yeah. But I got the basic thing up and running for them. You know, I suppose you could say it was partly my more my mix than the engineer's mix. But he had he, I think so, from what I remember. Right, I think so. Uh, but it was interesting. And I got there in the morning. We used to have to get there an hour before the session. I got there at nine, and the session started at ten. And uh, I'm sitting down, I've got all the desks set up, I'm waiting for the tapes, I'm waiting for any gear. And this bloke walks in with his gear, with his gear, and I thought, oh, that's a roadie. You know, I said, just put it over there, mate. It was Peter Gabriel. <laughs> He's cool. He's a really cool guy. Yeah, really good bloke. 
Do you remember any, any suggestions you made or any, any changes you made to the mix that when you'd hear the I can't same, remember. No. I can't remember. So, so when you're given the track to mix, is there an existing mix you're listening to that's your starting point or is it just like you start? Sometimes. Sometimes I think that was from scratch. I didn't have an existing mix on that one. But sometimes, you know, you, you'd have to uh, check the rough mix to make sure you don't miss important bits and all that sort of stuff. Sometimes there was already a mix of it and you had to get it better and you'd always check. Sometimes, a lot of the time, I'd start my mix and then about a few hours in, I'd think, well, I'll just see what they had and then you'd play what they had and you'd think, shit, theirs is better, what am I going to do? You'd try hard and get it better or instantly yours was better than theirs. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, was, wasn't, it was never a rule. So when you're an engineer, are you basically you're as part of being the engineer of a session for a track, you're basically doing a mix. Yeah. So if somebody's mixing an album, they're basically mixing, they're basically remixing what the engineer's already mixed. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes I did my I did all the thing from the beginning to the end, like with Nick Kershaw. That was all yeah. recorded by me and mixed by me. Mixing yeah. your own yeah. stuff actually is really, I found really difficult. That's what Gary said as well, because that was another question. Is it easier to mix somebody else's stuff? Yes, it is. <laughs> kind of unless, unless it hasn't been recorded properly. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was plenty of that going on. <laughs> right. And the side one. Welcome to the Made in Scotland 80s podcast, a podcast celebrating the golden era of Scottish bands and albums during the 1980s, 1990s and a hint of 2000s. Join me for some in-depth interviews and stories with the artists who are keeping the 80s alive and kicking on Made in Scotland 80s. Side two. 1983. You already mentioned the fact you did some engineering on the Yes album, 90125. Do you know which tracks you worked on? I had it on the in the car. Normally in the car, that's where I listen to all my music. Normally in the car, I just have all my every single song I like on the phone. Yeah. So I don't like MP3s. Right, okay. So I've got CD quality on the phone. And um I just hit song and then I hit shuffle. They're all mixed up in everybody, all my other records. Do you have a playlist of just your stuff then? No. I would. If I was you, I would. Yeah, but... I've got a playlist of your songs. Why wouldn't you have a playlist of your songs? It's like... (laughs) You know what I mean? I've been listening to a playlist of your songs. I've got got a YouTube playlist of your stuff. I've got a... 
Really? Playlist of your stuff. Yeah, because there's stuff on YouTube that's not necessarily on iTunes. So to oh. get everything, I've I had the two playlists. Oh, okay. Why would you not have like one list of like all the songs no. involved with that you like? Have I? Let me just check. Just a minute. Let me have a look. I think most of the playlists on here are when my daughter used to have my Apple ID. Oh dear. I think they're all hers. <laughs> oh dear. They're all her playlists. No, I don't have playlists. I just like to I can't listen to a whole album. Okay, I just yeah. like to hear a song, you know, I'll hear, you know, Super Tramp song and then, uh, you know. When one of your songs I, on the playlist in between two other songs. Yeah, yeah. and occasionally one of mine will come up and I'll think, oh, that doesn't sound quite as good as that. <laughs> or oh, that's, that's just as good or that's a bit better, you know, yeah. What was the question? I can't remember what the question was. Well, that, I just asked about three questions then. Oh, the original one was about the Yes album, which tracks you worked on. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, I was listening to one of those tracks came on, and I thought, I wonder if I can tell which ones I mix. So I'll play the whole album uh, in the car. And I know I didn't do um, Owner of a Bony Part. Yeah. Uh, or was it Owner of a Horse and Cart? <laughs> <laughs> I know I didn't do title. that. I know I didn't do... It can happen. It can happen to whatever that one was. I know I did Hold On. I know I did. If I've got it here, I can't remember all the names of them. I've got them up. I've did got you do Leave there. It? I know Gary worked on it. Oh, yeah, I did mix Leave It. God, my God, what a nightmare that was. That whole track was an absolute nightmare. It sounds like it would be, all the voices and everything. It sounds really Yeah, that's, we worked, me and Gary worked on that for months over months, because it was written in the studio. It was Trevor getting his little bit of writing involved because Trevor always <laughs> had a bit of publishing on the album. I don't know why. <laughs> I wonder why that is. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose, yeah. And they wrote it all together in the, in, the, in the studio, which is always a nightmare, because there's no, there was no song. So you've got five or six different people all putting their bit in to write one song. Apart from Alan White, I don't think he got involved. And, uh, of course, the arrangements was changing every two or three weeks. They changed the arrangement. Oh, we want two bars out of here and we want to put that chorus there. And this is all on multi-track. You know what multi-track is, yeah, don't yeah, you? Yeah. And so me and Gary would be editing this multi-track, literally cutting the tape, putting that bit of tape further that way or taking a bit out. And because me and both of us edited in a very slightly different place. Gary would always edit right on the, the note and I would always edit, uh, um, uh, you know, half a millimetre before the note. And bloody Chris Squire, if we got it ever so slightly out of time, if one of one of the edits was just not quite, he'd spot it and I'm, I'm thinking, I can't hear any. What? <laughs> How can he? Oh, I tell you. It was, and one of the edits we actually ended up with an edit. I don't know whether you know technically, but normally an edit's just a straight through the tape. But one of the edits had a like a little bit like that because there was a bit of overhang from another instrument. So it was, it was like, oh, it was just bizarre. It was really hard work. Uh, and, and as you watch the multi track go through, it was like a pedestrian crossing. Uh, it was like sticky tape, sticky tape, sticky tape, sticky tape. Bloody amazing. Yeah. Take your place, you know what I mean. 
It's a fantastic track. I'd, I'd never heard it before. Great video as well. Goblin Cream video. It's a brilliant song. Yeah. And a brilliant uh, I'll have to watch the video. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good video. Really good video. It was bloody hard work. <laughs> so when you hear a song like that, do you just hear the hard work or can you appreciate it as a song? I think, oh, it's a nice tune. I can appreciate it now, but for years <laughs> I just heard the hard work. Yeah. Just took you right back. Yeah. So you know, when you finish doing something like that, you think, oh, fuck, it's not that good. Yeah, and I never want to hear it again. Actually, most things you do when you work on them for a long time, you think, oh, I just don't want to hear that again. Most, a lot of stuff, even as good as it was, maybe I couldn't listen to for a couple of years. I couldn't even listen to it. I didn't want to hear it. Yeah. No, I can understand that. So another track is from 83 that you, I know you don't remember whether you did it or not, because I asked you in the email. Uh, Tracy Ullman, They Don't Know. So you don't know about they don't know. You you might have, I don't think I did that. Because you worked on the album and some tracks. You broke my heart in 17 places, but you're not quite sure if you worked on the top three single. What was it called? You they don't, don't know. They don't know. It's one of the They best. don't know. They don't know. Written by Kirsty McCall. It's one of the, the, my favorite singles of the 80s. It's an absolutely perfect track. Yes, you said that. Uh, I I, I, I did, 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 Latin dancing. That's his big thing. Oh, okay, thing. fair enough. How old is he now? He'd be a little bit older than me, maybe. He wasn't much older than me. He's a lovely guy. We got him really, really well. Is I might have done it because the tube, listening to it just then, I, I think I remember the tubular bells. I might have done it. Ah, okay. Really great track, though. I didn't realise. Brilliant track. The plot thickens. Yeah. The bit I find out researching it is that the, the baby leading to the last verse is not by Tracy Ullman. It's the version by Kirsty McCall from her single. Oh, is it? Tracy couldn't reach that high note, so they just extracted Kirsty's version and put it into that song. Amazing. It's funny. It's funny because uh, when I left, when um, Jill was starting to get the record label going and sort of diversing, she wasn't really managing me anymore. And she had a lady called Annie Holloway come in. She used to work for Dave Robinson at Stiff Records, and uh, uh, Kirsty McColl was her best friend. It was Annie's hot, her best friend, and Annie then became my manager for quite a few years. She ended up uh, uh, getting together with Chris Briggs. You know Chris Briggs? Well, he used to work at Phonogram. He he got lots of acts going, like Delamitri, 
but his big one was Robbie Williams. Uh, Robbie, Robbie Williams, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was his big one. He nurtured Robbie, got him off the drugs and did all that sort of stuff. Okay, so um, also in 83, there's the minor thing. You did a single mix for Relax, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. That was minor, yeah. Just, just one of the best best singles of all time, quite frankly. <laughs> mix in the seven inch. I know you did it in a very short space of time. Yeah, Trevor and Beam, they, that was another record that took a year. Another one where the record company uh, were absolutely screaming for it. Uh, it was right. Trevor was always on the edge of losing the whole. Thing and you know because he was just anyway uh, and, but he loved all that that was how he loved to work if he didn't have the stress and the chaos and it was easy it was no good for him he had to have equipment breakdowns he had to have artists throwing a wobbler and going off in a huff and you know it was all part of it it's what made him work anyway he'd um, Steve Lipson have you done him? Yes yeah Steve great guy uh, I have to tell you a little short story. Yeah, go for it. Uh, uh, and he, uh, you know, he owes me a little bit, old Steve, <laughs> because Trevor, after Gary went away to do his own thing, Trevor was desperate to find a proper engineer, and I was doing a lot with Pete Collins. I, I probably wouldn't have lasted with Trevor very long anyway. And... Um, Trevor rang me one night, I think it was a Sunday night or a Monday night, and he said, Jules, do you know anybody who, I've just got to get an engineer and a keyboard player for this Frankie, Frankie record. I, I can't think of anybody. Anyway, my friend Penny Morgan, who I'd been at, Sound, at Milner Sound with, at the demo studio, I'm still good friends with, she was working, she ran Producers Workshop, which was Milner Sound. It's called Producers Workshop, and Steve Lipson used to work there. And I rang Penny. I said, you know, "What about Steve Lipson?" And she said, "Oh, yes, yeah, Steve would love to work with Trevor." Anyway, so I just rang Trevor back and said, "What about Steve Lipson?" Penny reckons he's really good, and that's how he got the gig. So you're responsible for Stephen Lipson's career, basically. Yeah, he doesn't admit it though. Uh, he doesn't. <laughs> so 18 and, and Andy, Andy Richards, the same thing. Yes, yeah, I'd love to speak to him as well. I mean, he's had a pretty, pretty impressive career as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, I never let him forget. I never let him forget. <laughs> Every time I speak to him, I say, "Don't you forget, Andy," because I'd done a couple of mixed a couple of albums for him, and I, and I thought he was fantastic. It was, it was amazing. So, uh, yeah, I suggested him to uh, Trevor. So with the Relax single mix, when you listen to Relax, can you hear your contribution? Uh, sometimes I'm not, I'm not sure that it's my mix when I hear it. But then when I hear my mix, I go, I think that's mine because the vocal is placed well. And that was the problem that Steve couldn't fix. Steve had done a, a few mixes of it. Trevor had taken it to Ian Cooper at the townhouse to master. And Ian said, vocal's not sitting right. You know, you have to try again. Of course, in last-minute desperation, Trevor rang me on a Sunday night, another Sunday night phone call. Jules, can you come in at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning and do a quick mix of Relax? I said, all right, Trev. Got there at 8, finished the mix at 11, tried the B-side, which was very across the Mersey. Gave up on that. Lipson's mix was good. Then I remember getting in the car 
with Trevor, who was not the world's greatest driver. We went all across town quite quickly to the townhouse because the record company were ready to chop it and say, forget it, you know. Anyway, put it, we put it on and Ian Cooper said, yep, that's it, done. Three hours. So so when the vocals, is an issue with the vocals, not just cases, just turning the vocals up. As I said, even now when I hear possibly another mix by Lipson, I think, well, is that my mix or is that, oh, no, it's a bit different, you know, or maybe there's arrangement differences, but I couldn't tell what the problem with the vocal okay. was. Okay. 1984. All right, staying with Frank and going into 84, you did a mix on Two Tribes as well. Do you know which mix is your mix? There's so many different mixes of Two Tribes. Even Mine was the single mix. Yeah, but there's a... I know my... I know my mix when I hear it on that one, definitely. Do you know which single mix it is? Because there's, there's a couple of different single mixes of two tribes. I it's didn't about, know. <laughs> when I was Stephen Lipson, I said, like, it felt like the summer of 84, there's a different mix of two tribes every week or a different version of two tribes every week. Yeah. Yeah. Now, mine was definitely the one you hear on the radio. Okay. All right. That's good enough. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, that was another... Long-winded nightmare. God, blimey. God. Close to relax, which I just did in a few hours, three hours, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two tribes went on for two or three weeks, on and off. You're changing the arrangement. What was you know. what was tricky about it then? Was it just the fact it was constantly changing? Uh, it was on two 24-track Sony Digitals, which was a new thing to us. And uh, I didn't really like the sound of the digital too. It was very scratchy. You know, I mean, it's it's fine. It's it's not down to the sound. It's down. It's down to the sound. But it's much more down to the performance and the and the song. And you know, you listen to you watch you go to somebody's house and they're listening to a record with one speaker underneath the chair at the back of the room and another one. It doesn't make them. They don't go. Oh, sit, this isn't any good. They just want to hear the song. Yeah, don't they? Yeah. So you can overthink it sometimes. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, that which was. Do you prefer, which do you prefer, Relax or Two Tribes? What's your favourite? Uh, well, Relax, I think, is more... Oh, they're both amazing, actually. Yeah. Probably Relax, yeah. because there'd been nothing like that before. There's nothing like it, was no. there? No, not at all. No. That's what blew my mind as, a, as an 11-year-old. Not quite understanding yeah. the lyrics, but just, just loving yeah, it. Yeah, I didn't. I still don't understand. <laughs> well, I, I do now, but anyway. Oh, I know. another story. Yeah. So, 84... Um, were you choosing who you worked with at this time? Were you getting offers coming to you? No, no. I, I, I did the two Nick Kershaw albums. Or maybe I did the first one as a staff engineer and the second one as a freelancer. I can't remember. Because right, Human Racing uh, was 83, then you did the Riddle in thirty in 84. So was there a change? Because when you worked with him in 83, he was like a new artist. By 84, he was a successful artist. So was there a change in how you worked with him? Was it a different... No. No, it was all exactly the same, exactly the same musicians, same producer, same engineer. It was exactly the same and the same amazing artist. Because I had those two albums when they came out and I'd not listened to them in 30 years. And I've been enjoying the riddle in particular. Actually, it's a good album. Um, City of Angels is a a track that's there. Oh, City of Angels. And uh, what's that epic one? Second track on side one. I loved it. Uh, I loved it so much I spent a week mixing it. Tell you I'm the law with my medals from the war. So don't tell me what to do with my narrow point of view. 
Does that happen sometimes? We just overmixed because you like the song too much. Yeah, I overmixed it actually, uh, but it still <laughs> sounds amazing. I have to say, no, it's, it's really up. aged nicely. It's, it's a good album. I was, I was quite impressed. Yeah, I great it. album. Even my daughter likes it. Oh, there you go. Yeah, she Is likes favourite track. She loves the riddle. The riddle, okay. Uh, but was there ever any talk about what the riddle was about? Because there was always that mystery no. that came out that it was going to be about you had to find out where the actual location was and you get a prize and it's all in smash oh, it. I never, it I never knew that. No, I think well, I think he admitted in, later on in an interview it was all a load of bollocks, but at the time it was like this great mystery of where he's talking about in the lyrics. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have to say, uh, as far as overall talent goes, he would be pretty much number one for me. Just amazing. Really? Yeah, fantastic. Everything, everything. He could play anything. His songs were just fantastic. The colours he got into the songs. His vocals are amazing. Have you listened to any of his recent, you know, albums he's done by himself? No, the last one I had was Radio Musicola, which is the next one after the Riddle, and I kind of, yeah, I didn't. Nobody got onto that one. He went too far. Yeah, He changed everything. The one after that he did with Peter Wolf was pretty good. Can't you did some additional that. work on that. That was the works, wasn't it? I mixed that one. You mixed that one, yeah. The works, the works. Yes. That was pretty good. And then he had a bit of a gap. And then he did one called Eight. Yeah. Fantastic. What a fantastic record. And then another one called Fifteen, I think, which was also fantastic. And he's just done another one. It's not quite as good. It's a bit more laid back. But the... The two that he did, you've got to get them. They are, I, I love them when they come on in the car. Oxymoron is the latest one. Yeah. It's very nice. 15 Minutes is the one that's fantastic. Okay. Eight is one that's fantastic. And that's about it. Uh, he's, a, he's just a fantastic musician. Absolutely fantastic. Multi-talented genius. And uh, Lipson would agree with me on that. Lipson's favourite album, one of his favourite albums of all time is 15 Minutes, I think. No, sorry, Eight. Eight, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There was a big thing on Facebook about a year ago. Lipson started talking about this amazing Nick Kershaw album and uh, because we're all friends on Facebook, I sort of went in and said, oh, yeah, that's an amazing record and so is this one and so is that. And all these other people are getting involved and saying, oh, yeah, isn't he fantastic? And poor mm-hmm. old Nick's going, is this the Nick Kershaw, Nick Kershaw Appreciation Society or something? <laughs> <It's> very funny. <laughs> so a lot of mixing in 84. So there's um, Don't Tell Me, Blumange, top ten hit. Top Great 10 track. Hit. That was a pioneering track because nearly all of it came off the fair light and we went straight straight to half inch stereo that was an experiment uh so nearly all of it came off uh, live instruments sorry you know sequenced instruments and i think there was a guitar and the vocal came off the multi-track and that's all so that was quite pioneering i'll stay with you until the end i'll see you let me be your friend i'll see you let me I just wanna be your friend 
sure you're breaking all the rules How can I be sure I should be high above I climbed the mountain, reaching for the skies And all too soon I jump the moon and find I'm losing my mind But tell me I'm the howling wind But tell me you're the wounded star But tell me I'm the devil's friend And that not been done before then? Uh, well, we like to think it hadn't been done before. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know. So, Brasco beat why? Did you mix the, the seven inch version and the 12 inch version, or was it just the 12 inch version? Probably did both, probably. Both. Yeah. This was with Peter Collins, I think, wasn't it? Um, and further remixes, there's a 12 inch mix of Passengers about and John Lover top 10 hit. Was that a hit? Yeah, it was top 10, that was. They were actually really? Yeah. That was a very strange track. It was a strange track, but it was a hit. Very strange. That was in his years when he was not with Bernie, wasn't it? He was still with Bernie with that one, yes, he was. He was still with Bernie on that one? Yes, yes, that's Bernie's lyric. Is it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Well, that was a very strange one for me because it was a bit of a mess on tape. In what way? A bit all over the place, the way it was organised on the multi-track. Chris Thomas produced it, and I remember... I sent it off to him. How did I get it to him so quick? And then he rang me from the airport because he was doing his taxi year out. He said, oh, just change that bit and just change that bit. And then I was done. And he rushed off to wherever he was living, France or something. So how long would a 12-inch mix take normally? Uh, sometimes a day, sometimes a week. In the case of um, Go West, a couple of the Go West 12 inches. Call Me was a week. Or might have been more longer than a week. Why did that take so long? What was the... Uh, because there was always a, uh, a, a conference about which move we are going to do next with uh, Richard and... Richard, Drummy and... Uh, what's his name? Cox. Hmm? Peter Cox? Peter Cox and Steve, Gary Stevenson. There was always a big discussion. We'd all have a big discussion. What are we going to... What little trick are we going to do next? And then we'd either try it and it didn't work or we you know it was a very long really long winded and then there was then there was the A&R man who was American and he's he's now in charge of one of the big companies I can't remember his name uh, he some would come in you know once every two or three days and say oh no you don't like that bit you'll have to change that I mean it was yeah it was very long quite long winded fantastic though amazing it was they were great to work with face to face
So is that quite rare to have the artist involved with the 12-inch mix? Not in the Go West situation, no. They were involved with everything, yeah. absolutely everything. But apart yeah. from them, is that quite rare to have an artist like that? Yeah, on? yeah. Uh, Pet Shop Boys would be involved. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, Go West were right hands-on. And how I rare love doing 12-inch mixes. You love doing them. I did love doing them, yeah. What's the favourite one you did? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Is that all one that jumps up and thinks? Oh, the favourite one was David Sylvian. Okay, what was the song? I can't remember. Fantastic. I mean, I didn't know much about David Sylvian. You know, funnily enough, it was just such a good track. It was called Taking the Veil, I think. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of that one. Do you know it? Yeah, I've heard of that one, yeah. Yeah, really great track. And I thought I did a, a, a I was so proud of it. I actually remember doing that with um, who was me? Who was my assistant on that? Who's now famous? Can't remember. I was really proud of that, and uh, I never got a response from them. Apparently, he didn't like it. Oh, really? But I think I did an interview. I think I did a podcast with somebody who was a big David Sylvian person who said, "Oh no, don't worry. Most of the, his his fans really love that mix." Yeah, really, I, I love it. And when it comes on in the car, I think, oh, this is just, did I do this? Dresses white, all set for sale. Another really good one was uh, when Lippo did um, the uh, Simple Minds album. There was a track called, what was it called? Uh, um, that was an epic, uh, epic 12-inch. Is that the Street Fighting Years album? Is that the album? Yeah, I think so. So it's, this is your land, kick it in. No, it was called Child. Let There Be Love. Let There Be Love. Oh, that's a later one, yes. That's, yeah, yeah, and actually yeah. he used an edited version of my 12-inch as the single version. Oh, okay. So Did you yeah. do differently to his? Like, I don't know. <laughs> just, I don't know. I just was on song that day, and actually, the assistant on that was Steve Fitzmorris, who ended. Do you know him? No, no. He ended up producing and engineering Sam Smith album. Oh, okay, okay, wow, yeah. yeah. So um, another remix you did in '84 is for the Legend Bob Marley album. You did three tracks, and and they're really great because you don't try and modernise the songs. You don't try and make them into '80s songs. You just no, do I just nice made them slightly better. I think yeah. they're slightly better, but very difficult doing that. Very difficult doing right. something like that because it was they were iconic the way they were, you know. Uh, so I just sort of kept it 
pretty similar because actually you couldn't mix it any differently because that's what it was. Yeah. You know, the instruments had their place, the vocal had its place. I just changed a bit of reverb here and there, changed the panning, you know. And it comes on in the car and I think, geez, that sounds good. Yeah. But it doesn't sound that different to the original. No, they're like longer versions of the songs, of the existing songs. Oh, they're 12 inches. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. That's what makes it so nice. It's like they, they, you don't like rework them in any way. You just make kind of longer, nicer, but like, it's, it's really nice versions. I really enjoy listening to them. Yeah, well, one came on the car yesterday, actually, funnily enough. I thought, oh, I don't remember doing this. <laughs> then I remembered a couple of bits. I was, oh, yeah, I remember doing that bit. Yeah. Okay, cool. One love. One love came on in the One car. love. You did Waiting in Vain, Three Little Birds in One Love, yeah. Did I do Waiting in Vain? Yeah, well, you're credited as doing it. That'll do. Let's get together and feel judgment can we take a break now and do your did you do your little bit of research for your favorites of the 80s yes i did it took me a long time to get it right it down as well i like to see this right, play film of the 80s yeah uh well i thought i put back to the future which i'd say would be but then i forgot about alien or well, well, alien 79s so you can't have that you can have aliens Aliens is oh, okay. 80s. Well, let's call back Back to the Future. Back to then. the Future, then, okay. You gotta help me. You were the only one who knows how your time machine works. Time machine? I haven't invented any time machine. Okay, all right. I'll prove it to you. Look at my driver's license. Expires 1987. Look at my birthday, for crying out loud. I haven't even been born yet. Then tell me, future boy, who's president of the United States in 1985? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, the actor? <laughs> then who's vice president? Jerry Lewis. What a, a fave TV program. Probably Spitting Image or mm. <laughs> Abfab. Abfab is 90s, but fair enough. Okay. Oh, is it? Yeah. Well, Spitting Image, I don't think Spitting Image is 80s. No, no, Abfab is 90s, Spitting Image is 80s. So, yeah. You, you is can... it? I say, old girl, how do you read these preggers tests anyway? Oh, it's no good, Andy. It's over a year since we tied the knot and still not a hint. Oh, God, we've got to do something or they're bound to start thinking I'm a complete and utter jaffer. Well, maybe Charles could help. Oh, so you fancy him, do you? No, I mean, ask his advice. Absolutely no. I refuse to ask Chucker how to make ladies bumpies. It would completely destroy my sexual mystique. And besides, he's a wasp. We got Didy up, Stump Alley. Oh, come on, that was luck. Twice? Well, I told you it was lucky. What about Edward? Oh, I don't think he got Edward pregnant, did he? No, what about asking Edward's advice? Look, Edward's knowledge of sex is about as much use as the Pope at a breakdance contest. Look, there's probably something else, but I didn't have a lot of time to watch TV in the 80s, to be truthful. <laughs> That's what they all say, yeah. It's all the producers and engineers. Say. Is that what they say? Yeah, just too busy. Stephen Lipson wouldn't give me any answers at all. He said, no, I was too busy. Didn't watch any TV, didn't see any movies. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. that's you're probably exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. 
Yeah, there was no time for any of that. We were just all flat out. Uh, fave book of the 80s, didn't have time to read books. You have a favourite magazine or newspaper that you'd... Studio Sound. Okay. Work, <laughs> work, work, eh? Uh, fave LP, well, I put Robert Palmer down here, but I can't say that's my fave LP. God, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I love Tom Petty. Oh, well, I'm just looking up my albums up here. I, I can't see any of the... I love Super Tramp, but that was 70s, wasn't it? But there was some in the 80s, I think, that, yeah, but it's mostly 70s. Yeah, it was 70s. Uh, that I, I just can't answer that question. There probably is one that I loved, but I can't remember it. Okay. Uh, fave live attempt at, at event. Well, I didn't go to many gigs, but I did go to, I was down in Melbourne doing a Pseudo Echo album. Do you remember Pseudo yes, Echo? yeah. Funky Town. Uh, doing an album with them when they suddenly decided they didn't want to be a pop band anymore, they wanted to be a rock band. Great. <laughs> I get down there thinking it's going to be just like what I normally do with lots of sequences and all that. And I, and I we want to be a rock band, the two brothers. Right. Of course, Brian, who's still a good friend of mine, said, well, the two brothers, they want to be a rock band. I think, bet you thought you were coming down to working with a fair light and you know, keyboards and all that sort of stuff. Sorry, we're going to be a rock band anyway. That's a whole other story, that one. Actually not a bad record we did in the end, some really good tunes, but it was all a big big cock-up and I didn't get paid for it too, which was oh, even more. Okay. I got paid a little bit. Anyway, it's my, it was my main bad debt of my whole career. In fact, it's the only bad debt I had the whole Anyway, another story. Uh, Favourite gig, well, when I was doing the album, we Pink Floyd were here. This is 1989. Yeah. And they were doing that big show they did with the pig and everything at Rod Laver Arena. I would say that would be the most amazing gig, the most amazing sound, the most amazingness of everything I'd ever seen in my life. Right, okay. Really amazing. I'll never forget it. And I knew the percussionist quite well. Can't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, I just thought the whole thing was stunning. Dave Gilmore's guitar solo, he did about a 15-minute guitar solo, and me having the dogs here, I'm waiting for about a bad note. <laughs> there was not, there was one tiny, tiny little bad note in this whole 15-minute solo. It was just, oh, and the sound. I mean, this is 90, this is 30 years ago. The sound was just, how, how have they got it to sound like that? And I thought, it can't get any louder, it can't get any louder. Uh, without distorting it, but it got louder and it didn't hurt you. It was oh, amazing. Okay, and the last question was the best song, hated song you wish you'd have produced. 
don't uh, the the first uh, Crowded House single. Ah, you're the second person to say that. Who who else said it? You didn't ask me that. Uh, so look, who said that? Who said that? I'll tell you the story. Yeah, you can go for it. Yeah, you, you tell the story while I look that up. Um, it was I'd come down here to do a, a, an album in the 80, 1983 with a band called the Machinations. I'd done a single with them in 1982, helped by a, call, a guy called Jimbo Barton, who ended up being Peter Collins's engineer after I left Peter. And I did a single with the Machinations. It was quite a big hit. And a few months later, or maybe in the, the next year, I came down to do an album with them. And hang on, what was the point of this? Credit oh, that's right. And I did the album with a guy called, a, a keyboard player called... Eddie Rayner, who was in Split Ends. Yeah. You know Eddie? I know. I knew he was in Split Ends and he was... Yeah. yeah anyway, we got on like a house on fire. He was amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, we made a really great record together. And a couple of weeks after we finished, I was down at his house up in Melbourne. And I, he said, oh, look, you know, um, I've got this cassette of this, uh, this guy's demos of... Um, What's his name's demos? What's his name? Quick. What's Neil his name? Finn. Neil Finn. Neil Finn's demos. You should have a listen to it. It's really, really good. I have still got that cassette in the drawer. Oh, really? And it had all the, it had that song on it, plus many of the others. And I listened to it, I thought, oh, it's really good. But I was absolutely flat out at the time. Uh, I just didn't have time to think of it. I had to rush back. I had to do this. I had to do that. And I, and I thought, oh, God, I wish I could have done that. Anyway, I could have got the gig. Maybe, no, I didn't get it. So when you listen to that first Crowded House album, is there anything you think, I would have done that differently? And I would, don't dream it's over, what would you have done differently as a producer? Nothing, it was fantastic. Who produced that? That's Mitchell Froome. That's Mitchell, is it? Yeah. yeah. You know, everything. Three albums. Listen, Neil Finn, he never, he never does anything wrong. No, no, he's a brilliant he singer. Yeah. Yeah. My, my wife and her sister, my wife's sister, is number one Crowded House fan is a real nuisance and Neil gets quite fed up with it. <laughs> <laughs> and funnily enough, you know, just go, I know you don't want to go to the 90s, but when I was doing the McCartney album, yeah, I got a call from, I got two calls that I really regret. I got one to mix the Duran Duran massive hit single. Ordinary uh, World. Yeah. Oh. 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 <laughs> I was desperate to do it, but I knew that it wouldn't be done. I said, oh, can I do it this weekend? Uh, you were Paul would have been, yeah, Paul would have been a bit upset. You would on Biker Like an Icon instead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, I thought, God, can I do it? Can I fit it in? And I decided in the end not to. And it's probably just as well because it probably would have gone over a few days. That's going to be my question. Like, if, if it had been like three days, would Paul wouldn't have said, yeah, you can take three days off while we're making it didn't up. even bother asking, actually. You, right. What do you think his answer yeah. would have been? Probably no. No, okay. He was paying me a lot of money, you know. Right. And, and, it, and he was a nice, he was a lovely bloke. We did get on really well. I didn't want to upset him. Okay. I, I just really, re I really regret the fact that that came through at that time. It was yeah. just... Oh, just devastating. And coincidentally, during that time I was with McCartney, 
uh, Annie, the manager, rang me up and said, oh, listen, Crowded House are playing up in Cambridge at the uh, the Corn Exchange or something. Well, uh, he, he wants to meet you. Uh, uh, and I, <laughs> uh. <laughs> so, uh, so off I go up to the Corn Exchange. I see them playing. They're amazing, another amazing band. Go backstage, sit down, everybody's milling around and Neil starts to interview me. It's almost like an interview. Then it got down to it and he said, what are you doing at the moment? I said, oh, I'm doing Paul McCartney album. And he said, why do they always put to send me send me people who are working with Paul McCartney? <laughs> and that was it. I didn't get, didn't get the thought, gig again. Really? Yeah. You thought it would be a plus point to him. Because Mitchell Froome had done a Paul McCartney album. Yeah, but that was after Crated House, though. Hey? Mitchell Froome and McCartney after Crated House, or in between Crated House, I guess it would be, wouldn't it? Because, yeah. No, Mitchell Froome did Woodface. Yeah, so he did that. He did one, he did, well, okay, so he did two Crated House albums, then McCartney, then the third Crated House album, so right in the middle. Yes, but the, the Crowded House, the McCartney album he, he did was before the one I did. Yeah, Clouds in the Dirt. Yeah, yeah. so that's what. Anyway, I wasn't. Oh, man. That's twice because. you could have produced crap. So that would have been together alone, then you could have produced or became together All alone. All right, stop it, stop it. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> album, though, isn't it? All the production is amazing. He doesn't make a bad album, mate. I'm telling you, it's fantastic. No, it's Actually, amazing. I'm not sure that, I'm not sure listening to what he does and the control he wants, he's a lot like Trevor, I think. So it yeah. might have ended up not quite working out with me and him. Be truthful, but it'd be nice to find out, wouldn't it? Would have been nice to find. Yeah. Out. Uh, sorry for, yeah. for bringing that up for you. So, like, so you got anyway, to... that's the nineties. Go back to the eighties. Yeah, you got you got to relive that again. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Could have, would have, should have. So that's a great choice. So, yeah, it's Stephen Haig. Stephen Haig chose that as his song as well. I never met him. Never met him. Okay. Good yeah. producer though. Fantastic. Oh, of course you. Well, you didn't meet him because we'll get to that with um with actually actually. So you didn't actually 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 actually. No. You didn't meet him? No, as well. I didn't actually. Because we'll get to that in 87, how he makes the track you produce and you mix the track he produced, but we'll get to that, okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was right. good fun. That's, that's <laughs> <interesting>. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I mean, that's, I'm intrigued by that now. Okay, it all so worked eight, out really well for both of us, to be Yeah, truthful. absolutely. God. This is the end of part one of the interview. So that was part one with Julian. Some massive, massive hits in part two to look forward to. Until then, surprisingly big love for Nick Kershaw from Julian in that chat. So he's pretty much number one for overall talent out of all the people he's worked with. I mean, think of the people he has worked with. That's quite, that's quite high praise. I had Nick's first three albums, Human Racing, The Riddle, and Radio Musicola in the day. But I was, after me, I was more of a Howard Jones guy, personally. I liked them both, but in the 80s, you had to be in one camp or the other. You know, it's Duran or Wham, U2 or Simple Minds, Pet Shop Boys or Erasure, and Nick or Howard. You could like them both, but you had to have a favourite. And I was, I was definitely Team Hojo. But those three Nick albums do have some excellent pop music on them. And this, this track is a particular favourite of mine, off the riddle. This is City of Angels, and this is me saying, till next time, have a peaceful one. i
There's quite a lot to cover. You don't look old enough, though, to be in the 80s. That's the that's an interesting... Huh? I'm 50 next year. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> oh, no, you've got a bit of grey. No, you might be there's 50. There's lots of grey. Yeah. I've got four kids, so there's lots of grey. Yeah. Bloody hell. Four kids, and you're looking like that, mate. Jesus. You're a lucky bastard. <laughs> I've got one, and look at me. <laughs> <laughs> this is part one of the interview. Quiz now. Old Roland Stripey Trousers, all the world with plastic miles. <laughs>